The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Today's scripture reading in Matthew 4, 1-4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, in his book, Tempted and Tried, Temptation and the Triumph of Christ, Russell Moore opens with a a pretty disturbing image. And so I thought it'd be fun to share it with you all this morning. Uh, Moore writes about how slaughterhouses have learned how to keep cattle calm and blissfully unaware as they march to their death. As they near the end, These slaughterhouses have it down to a system where the cows don't even see it coming. So the reality is they're marching to their death. They're being led to their death, and yet they have no idea. They don't even see the death itself happen. It just comes. When the Bible speaks about the tempter and the tempter, it uses the language of predator and prey. But there's also another image that we see in the scriptures, and that is the image of a rancher and livestock. Russell Moore comments on this. He says it's not just that humanity is being tracked down, but we're being cultivated. We're being cultivated. Is it possible that the path to temptation that ends in death um, is not random and sudden, but rather calculated, gradual, and personality-specific? Is it possible that humanity is being marched to their own death and we have no idea, is it possible that that is exactly how the enemy wants it? Today we begin a new series uh, for the season of Lent titled 40 Years in 40 Days. And during this season of Lent, during this season, um, we want to do something together. And that is, we want to stare temptation right in the face. Together. Uh, We want to stare at temptation, to not hide from it, to not run from it, to not act like it it doesn't exist. Um, We want to stare at temptation, and we also want to stare at Jesus. For the season of Lent is a season where we look at our brokenness, right? 
Um, the season of Lent is a season where we examine ourselves, where we look at our lives. That's good and necessary. But, but all of this is not to take us down the road of, of shame and, and self-loathing and, and self-hatred. No, it's, it's to take us into the arms of Jesus. Right? And so we want to stare at temptation, but we also want to stare at Jesus. And so we're going to talk and we're going to think about temptation, the temptations that we experience in our life together uh, by looking at Jesus, by looking specifically at his 40 days and nights in the wilderness. Um, As we do so, we're also going to look back at Israel's 40 years in the wilderness because when we look at Israel, we see who? Ourselves, right? Right? Um, But we do want to look at Jesus. He's our pioneer in the wilderness, showing us the way. Um, But he's not just our pioneer. He's also our victor, um, assuring us that you and I will overcome the tempter. Assuring us that ultimately you and I will overcome every temptation we face in this life. So, We're going to begin this morning by looking at the first temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4, in the ESV, Kenyan. I'm kidding. So if you don't have your Bibles open, you can turn there. Um, And I have uh, three questions that I want to ask us as we walk through this text. Three questions. So the first question is, Where is God in our temptation? Where is God in our temptation? Look at verse 1 with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, So Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, has just been baptized. Um, He's just heard the affirmation from his Father that says that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And now, right on the heels of that, it's it's almost as if Jesus' hair is still wet. We see that he's led into the wilderness. Um, And as we read the text... Who is it that's leading him in the wilderness to be tested or to face temptation? Is it the devil? No, it's not. It's the Spirit. The Spirit leads him in to the wilderness, where there he's tested by, tempted by, the devil. Now, I don't know if you're troubled by this, but... What do we do with the fact that here it's the Spirit leading Jesus into a place where he's tempted? Um, Well, I have a few thoughts. First, I think we need to be clear about something. Um, We need to be clear. God does not tempt us. James is clear about this. James chapter 1 verse 3. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts 
No one. James is clear. God does not tempt us. When we're being tempted, we cannot, in kind of this fatalistic way, blame God and say, well, this is just our lot. That's not who God is. Um, God is not cruel. Uh, God does not lure us into temptation. He doesn't try to trick us into sinning for the fun of it or to have this, see, I told you so, moment, right? God does not tempt us from sin. He rescues us from sin. The scriptures are clear. God is not the author of evil. God rescues us from evil. So we need to be clear about that, right? Because the scriptures are. Nonetheless, we also have to wrestle with the reality that in the Bible, there are numerous stories where God tests his people, right? It's, it's kind of all over the place. Um, for a few examples, think Abraham and Isaac. Think Genesis 22.1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Think Psalm 26.2. What's the psalmist pray there? He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Think Job. You remember Job? Who brings up Job to the accuser? It's God. God brings up Job to the accuser. Nonetheless, it is clear that the evil that is brought into Job's life is by the accuser. Right? Now, I don't know what you're thinking, feeling right now, um, but I think it's important that we have the right image. Right? The image that the scriptures give us um, when we think about God testing his people. Right? Uh, the image is not God taking a child and throwing it to the wolves and saying, all right, let's see if you're strong enough. Ha-ha, you're not strong enough. You're torn to shreds. I knew it. Right? That image is kind of troubling, right? Um, that's not the image I want us to think of. What's the image I want us to think of? I want us to think of a metalsmith. I want us to think of a metalsmith that takes a metal and he applies heat to it, right? He applies pressure to it. He tests the metal. Why does he test the metal? To break it? No. To make it stronger. Right? To make it stronger. James 1-2. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, why, James? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, the enemy has a goal in, tem in tempting you. In every one of your temptations, his goal is to separate you from Jesus. His goal is to bring evil and destruction and chaos into your life. His goal is to silently lead you to your death without you even realizing it. God has a purpose in testing. And what is that purpose? His purpose is to draw you closer to him. It's, it's to sanctify you. It's to strengthen you. It's to make 
your, your faith stronger. It's to empower you to persevere through everything that comes in your life. So the reality is God is sovereign over every temptation that we face. And that is such good news. Because every temptation we face can in the end only seek to draw us closer to Jesus. That is good news as you and I face temptation day in and day out. As we're victorious over it and in our failures, God's using all of it for our good. For our good. Not for our good. For our good. So we pray to God and we can pray, Lord, spare me from trials. Spare me from testing. But we know that even if we go through it, he's working to draw us closer to Jesus. That's where God is in our temptation. That's where God is. That's what he's doing. Okay. Second question. How does the devil tempt us? How does the devil tempt us? How does the devil tempt Jesus? I want us to look and think about this together. Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Jesus has been abstaining from food for 40 days. Um, As someone who has done that, let me tell you, you are hungry. No, right? Um, I imagine that we do not know that level of hunger, right? Um, Now, it's likely that Jesus probably wasn't abstaining from water, but we don't know. We don't get those details, right? Um, But it's safe to say that he's not only weak and hungry, but he is in genuine physical jeopardy. I mean, he is really weak. He is really frail. And this is what I want us to see. This is exactly when the enemy comes to him. This is exactly when the enemy comes to him. Okay, sidebar comment here. Um, The enemy is going to come to you when you are most vulnerable. He's going to come when you're exhausted, uh, when you're stressed, when you feel lonely, when you feel rejected, um, after you've had that conflict, when you are at your end. He's going to come to you. He's going to come when you are weak, right? Um, The enemy also is going to come after your wounds. Uh, There's a a pastor and counselor by the name of of Jay Stringer. He's written a fabulous book um, titled Unwanted. I can't think of the subtitle right now. Uh, But in the book, Uh, He counsels those that deal with unwanted sexual behaviors. He counsels Christians that deal with sexual addiction. And he says in the book that 
what he finds more times than not is that um, sexual addiction and unwanted sexual behavior is rooted in childhood trauma. Um, It's rooted in childhood sexual trauma. Do you see how the enemy works? What if temptation is not random and sudden? What if it's very intentional? What if it's person-specific? What if it's intelligent? Do you see how the enemy works? Secondly, how does he tempt us? How does he tempt us? No, not second, that's first. End of sidebar comment. (laughs) Number one, how does the enemy test us? He starts with the identity. He starts with the identity. Listen to what the tempter says. The tempter says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, I love what Charles Spurgeon says about these verses in his commentator. In his commentary, he says this. He says, The tempter begins his suggestion with an if, an if about this sonship. This is his usual fashion. He bids the Lord prove his sonship by catering for himself. And yet that he would have been, yet that would have been the surest way to prove that he was not the Son of God. For a true son will not doubt his father and undertake to provide his own bread. He will wait to be fed by his father's hand. Okay, do you see what Spurgeon's saying here? He's saying the enemy wants Jesus to define sonship on his own terms. He wants Jesus to rely on himself. He wants Jesus to prove himself. He wants Jesus to use his power for his own purposes, so that in so doing, Jesus will come to believe that he's not a son of God. Right? Um, Because a true son wouldn't do that. A true son would rely on his father's provision. Do you see? Do you see how the enemy works? He does the same thing to us, right? Maybe it's like this. Well, if you're a son and and you're a daughter of the king, then just do blank. It's not going to matter. You, you've done it a million times. You're, you're fine, right? Hey, every Christian deals with this, and you know God's going to forgive you anyway. So just do it. So we do. And then what does the enemy do? He comes behind us and he goes, you did what? <laughs> if you were a son and daughter, you, you definitely wouldn't have done that. Um, that's not what sons and daughters do. Right? Um, The enemy wants you to create a stack of evidence against yourself for him to use to come back and condemn you. Do you see how he works? First, he goes after the identity. Secondly, how does he tempt? He he tempts us by appealing to our imaginations and to our appetites. He tempts us by appealing to our imaginations, and our appetites. Command these stones to become bread. Um, The the tempter knows that Jesus is in the Judean wilderness. 
Um, he is surrounded by stones. Um, the tempter also knows that bread would have been a regular part of Jesus' diet. Right? Um, he knows that when Jesus came home from work in the evenings, he would smell bread being baked. Right? Um, he would see the bread. I mean, the sight and smell of fresh-baked bread, people. Yeah, it's beautiful, right? He knows this. Um, he's doing exactly uh, what he did to Israel in the wilderness, and he's, he's doing it on Jesus. Um, uh, this is some fun Bible stuff here, okay? Um, when you look at Matthew's gospel, he's wanting you to place Israel and Jesus right next to each other. What do I mean? Um, well, when Jesus is born, you have the slaughter of innocents, right? And then Jesus comes out of Egypt. Comes out of Egypt. Where does he go after that? Oh, he's baptized through the waters of baptism. Then where does Jesus go immediately after his baptism? Into the desert, into the wilderness, right? Is this story sounding familiar to you? Right? Um, it's the story of Israel. Um, Jesus is recapitulating the story of Israel. He's embodying the story of Israel. Why does that matter to you and me? Because Matthew wants us to see who the true Son of God is. Matthew wants us to see where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. He is the Son of God that will be faithful. And so we're kind of supposed to, in Jesus' um, wilderness journey, be thinking back to Israel, right? Um, and if you can remember Israel in the wilderness, right? Um, if you remember, when Israel is in the wilderness, does God provide for them? Yes. He provides for them with manna that would appear on the ground, but not just that. He would... He would give them quail. Um, and when uh, the voice of God's prophet would speak, water would spring forth from the rock. He, he supernaturally provided for them, right? But what does Numbers 11 say? I know you all each morning have been waking up and doing your devotional in the book of Numbers, right? What is the... What does Numbers 11 say? Well, it says that the people began to crave more. They began to crave more. Um, they actually started imagining, and they started fantasizing about going back to Egypt. Um, they start talking about the fish that was in Egypt, uh, the cucumbers, the melons, the onions, the garlic they had, in Egypt, and they're like, well, now we just have this dumb manna, right? Um, they eventually get to this point by following their imagination and by listening to their appetite where they conclude it would be better for us to just go back and die in Egypt as slaves um, because at least we would die with full stomachs. Who is leading them? Who is their God? Their God is their appetite. 
How do we see this? We see this because they're willing to lay down their life for what? Their appetites, their desire. The tempter does the same thing to us, doesn't he? Um, The tempter wants you and me to live our lives um, solely seeking to satisfy our appetites, solely seeking to satisfy our desires. Why does he want us to do that? Well, because silently and without our knowing, he wants to lead us down the path of destruction. Um, The reality is that the way of Satan does not lead to a satisfaction of our appetites, right? The way of Satan does not lead to a satisfaction of our desires. What does the way of Satan lead to? Insatiability. Um, But something worse than insatiability. Revulsion. Revulsion. Uh, To quote more again, I think he illustrates this point in his book really well. Listen to me. His words have, have really stayed with me this week in a very sobering way. He says, By the time Esau's red soup was digesting in his stomach, he was weeping to have that moment back. The Israelites had the bread and quail they demanded, so much that they vomited it up. Judas would get the money that he wanted, but he would use it to buy the land where he would lie twisting over his own tangled intestines. The bread of demons leaves you dead in the end. It's heavy. It's the lie of satisfaction, right? The lie that Satan wants us to believe is that if we will just satisfy these appetites, if we will just listen to their voice, then they will bring us life. Right? But it's a lie. How does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? That's the last question that I want us to look at together, is how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know the text that Jesus references here? It's Deuteronomy 8. What's going on in Deuteronomy 8? Well, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is trying to explain to the people of Israel what their wilderness wanderings were all about, right? Um, He's trying to show them that God did not lead them into the wilderness because he is cruel. God did not lead them into the wilderness because he was trying to trick them. God did not lead them into the wilderness to kill them. Um, Why did God lead them into the wilderness? Um, Because he wanted 
to work on them. He wanted to transform them. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to shape them to be people that could live in the promised land, right? Um, the crazy thing, if we think about the appetite and the desires of the people in the wilderness, is that in some ways God gave that to them. How is the promised land described? It's described as um, overflowing with what? Milk and honey, right? Do you see? He's, he's appealing to the appetites, right? Um, Moses says to the people um, that Yahweh humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna. Why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. You might know that man does not live by bread alone. I was listening to a, a song on the way to the church this morning, and, and the song, the lyrics I loved, it said, Lord, do you let our heart break so that our heart will ache for you, for you alone. Right? Um, it's so important to remember that in the wilderness, God provided for his people, right? Um, he gave them what they needed, but he did so in a way that would, that would teach them, that would shape them, that would transform them to live lives dependent upon him, right? Um, food, uh, sex, work, um, all of these appetites are, are good appetites that are given to us by God, but they must be ordered underneath the primary love of God. They must be shaped by the love of God. If not, like Moore talks about, it's, it's going to go bad, right? Um, and the enemy knows this, right? He knows how powerful these God-given appetites are. Um, Lewis, in his screw tape letters, one of the demons is talking, and he says something essentially along the lines of, um, God gives humans all these good things that he wants them to enjoy, and if they're going to be any use to them, then we have to distort them. Right? We have to twist them. Um, the enemy works like a parasite, like a cancer that comes in and distorts that which is good, that which is powerful, because he knows what? He knows the damage that it will do on our lives, right? And, and what's so powerful when Jesus quotes this Old Testament text is to put words in the mouth of Jesus, which, okay, which I mean, you really don't want to do, um, but to put words in the mouth of Jesus, it's like he's saying, hey, I know what you're doing. It worked on Israel. It's not going to work on me. Um, you're not going to get me to follow my appetites over my father. You're not going to get me to test my father. I see what's happening right now. I see um, this ache, right? I see this loss, but I know that God is working for my good. 
Um, I know that the Father is always working for my good, whether he's calling me to fast or to feast. And so I do not need to go down this road for satisfaction, for he is the one that satisfies me. His word. His word. Okay. So I'm going to close with this. Um, What does this mean for you and I in our fight against temptation? What does this mean for you and I in our fight against temptation? All right? I'm going to conclude with three very brief thoughts. First, um, as we read this narrative, as we read this story, it's so important that we see Jesus not only as a pioneer, he is a pioneer. And I I say pioneer to uh, draw our minds to someone who shows us the way, right? But also someone who's gone before us, right? Um, He's a pioneer, and in that he's our victor. Um, In some sense, um, Jesus has gone into the wilderness um, so that we do not have to, right? In some sense, he has fought the battle for us. Um, He has defeated the tempter for us. Um, It's so important for us to see that Israel was not strong enough to overcome every temptation in the wilderness, right? Um, We are not strong enough in and of ourselves to overcome every temptation we face. We know this, right? Our, Our life tells us this right? Um, But the bigger reality is that Jesus was, right? Jesus is strong enough. He overcame the tempter, and he ultimately overcame the biggest test, the cross, right? He was victorious, and in him we share in that victory. And so that means what I've tried to emphasize throughout this entire sermon because I think it's so comforting to us if we can wrap our minds around it that in every temptation that you and I face, whether we fail or whether we are victorious, God is working to draw us closer to him. That is good news. Um, When we're victorious, we see that God by his spirit has worked in us to make us more like his son. And we see that it's not just because of us, but it's because of what he's doing, transforming us by the Spirit, right? And when we fail, he's also working to draw us closer to him, right? Because we see our need for him. We see that, oh yes, we do not live by perfection. We do not live by our um, moral perfect purity. What do we live by? We live by the grace of God that every time that we fail, we are met with his love and his mercy and his kindness. The enemy wants to separate us from God. God will not let that happen, right? Um, He is the word. Um, He is the bread that empowers us to make it through every temptation to the end, right? Secondly, the second thing I want to talk about as I conclude um, is that as the church, we need to resist simplistic narratives about temptation. 
And we also need to resist simplistic responses to how we fight temptation, lest we will cause despair for ourselves and despair for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Um, I don't think that this passage is often described like this from pastors. I think it can be. Um, but irregardless, what I've seen over and over again in pastoral counseling is that what's been heard and what's been internalized, the, internalized by the church um, as they think about this passage is something like this. Jesus quoted scripture. When we are tempted, we quote scripture. You will overcome temptation by quoting scripture, just like Jesus overcame temptation by quoting scripture. End of story. Now, let me be clear. I am all about quoting scripture when we are tempted. Um, I think it's necessary. And I think meditating on the scriptures, meditating on numbers, <laughs> memorizing the scriptures, is, is a lost art in the church, right? So what am I saying? I'm saying that we need to resist simplistic narratives that say, oh, when I'm tempted, all I need to do is just quote the scripture passage, and it'll go away, and then I'll move on. Why? Because that doesn't happen, right? Our lives bear witness to this, and I think the enemy wants to use that message to lead us to what? Hopelessness. Because we have that image in our head, and we say, oh, well, that didn't work, so it doesn't really matter if I meditate on the word of God or not. Do you see? It doesn't really matter if I set my mind on the scriptures. I hope in this sermon you've seen that when we're tempted, there's a lot going on, right? <laughs> um, there is a lot that the enemy is doing, right? Um, his temptation is intentional. It's strategic, right? It is person-specific. So therefore, we must resist simplistic narratives that diagnose our temptation and fight against our temptation. Do you see what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? I'm going to take that as a yes. Okay. Um, finally, with that being said, uh, I want to point out one discipline. One discipline, one means that we can use as we fight temptation as we fight temptation. Um, and that is the discipline of watchfulness. Uh, the spiritual discipline of uh, a watchfulness. Um, as the church, it, we do not want to overestimate the power of the enemy. Right? Yes. At the same time, it would be foolish for us to underestimate his intelligence. Do you see? Remember, he wants to lead us like cattle to the slaughter where we don't realize it. Right? Um, so this idea of watchfulness is this idea of self-awareness. It's this idea of being aware of ourselves. It's our, this idea of being aware of each circumstance that we find ourselves in, right? Um, you may not see it on a modern spiritual disciplines list, 
Um, but I do think you see it in the New Testament. And if you read the Puritans, like, uh, like Puritans like John Owen talks about watchfulness. I mean, when he thinks about watchfulness, he gets super jazzed, right? Um, this idea of awareness, readiness, it's not this posture, I don't know what you're hearing, it's not this posture of fear and anxiety, right? Um, that the devil is kind of lurking behind every door. No, it's, it's not that. It's an awareness, right? Um, so, so what's this look like? Um, when my wife and I uh, were first married, we lived in these apartments that a ton of people live in, uh, Canterbury Gardens. It's just right on the edge of Mountain Brook. And so uh, my wife and I in the afternoon, we'd, we'd go on walks, and we would walk through these Mountain Brook neighborhoods. And I can remember as I was passing mansion after mansion after mansion after mansion, I remember thinking, yeah, I think I want to be rich. <laughs> no, I definitely want to be rich. Uh, I need to be rich, right? Um, it was a subtle thought, but it was this voice that said, uh, you deserve more, Brad. Uh, not just that, you need more. Uh, it's this voice that is trying to lead me down the road of envy and, and jealousy and, and bitterness, right? Um, now, am I going to leave this church and go work for Joel Olstein? Probably not. You know, I could, I guess. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but the enemy wants to use that greed. The enemy wants to use that bitterness. The enemy wants to use that in more subtle ways. Do you see? Um, it starts as a pebble, and it ends up being a massive snowball, wreaking havoc on our lives. Um, so to practice watchfulness um, is to stop, is to go, whoa, right? Um, where did that come from? Uh, what's going on here? is to say, Father, would you reveal to me what's happening in this moment by your Spirit? Um, as I do that, as I pause for a second, um, I see, oh, there's an identity issue going on. Um, for some reason, I'm not sure why, but I think if I'm ever going to be a man that's respectable, if I'm ever going to be a man that people look up to, then I need to be wealthy. I don't know why I believe that. I do. Um, I also believe if my wife and my children are ever going to love me and respect me, then I need to make a lot of money. My wife has never said that. The enemy doesn't care, right? He uses it to say that I'm worthless. Um, then what happens? Well, uh, there's something about my appetites. I'm desiring wealth in this moment, right? It's not inherently evil to be wealthy, um, but the enemy wants to take that and to make it an ultimate thing in my life so that I will seek after that. Once again, I might not be going to Joel Olstein's church, but I can still do that in my own life at Shades Valley, right? All the while joking that I'm a pastor of a small church. Do you see how he works? Um, and subtly, as I'm following down that road and I'm following my appetites, um, I begin to do what? I doubt my calling, right? Um, 
And I begin to get resentful to God that all these people could have this and I can't. There are tons of Christians that are wealthy. They're doing just fine. A ton of them are super mature. Why can't that be me? You see, all of a sudden, God has become a servant to my what? My appetite, my desires. So watchfulness is a way that we can stop the voice of the tempter. We can pause, we can ask what's going on, and we can do what? We can set our hearts and our minds on the word of God. I'm not talking about using um, a scripture verse as a magic spell. What am I talking about? Um, I'm talking about this. Do you know when you um, watch a TV show so much that you begin to interpret your reality through it? What am I talking about? You begin in almost every moment to say, oh my gosh, this is just like that one time in the episode where blank, right? Um, I confess that show was the office for me, and I annoyed the heck out of John, Mark, and Jonathan. It was just constant, every situation. This is exactly when, right? What was ha- what's happening when we do that? We're seeing our lives through the narrative of a TV show, right? Um, Jesus is so immersed in the scriptures. He's so immersed in in the word of God, that it comes to him. He can't help but see what's happening in the wilderness through those lenses, right? And so we do this through memorization. We do this through meditation. We do this as we listen to teaching. We do this as we chew on the word of God. And by watchfulness, we're led to the word of God and we're led to hear the truth of God. We hear his voice his voice. Father, what do you say about my identity? Father, what do you say about wealth? Father, what do you say about my future? Do you see? And in so doing, we see the lies for what they are. The good news of the gospel is that although the enemy wants us to be cattle, that he can silently lead to our deaths, we are not We are sheep who have a good shepherd who will lead us through every temptation that we face, drawing us closer to him, conforming us to his very person, revealing his love, his goodness, and our future. Amen.